Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm Alan Olga, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I have made movies in which literally a crew, almost like the circus, you know, there's trucks and RVs and tents, we drop into a town. Sometimes the town is uh, Evansville, Indiana, or sometimes the town is Darmstadt, Germany, or sometimes the town is is uh, Seattle or Baton Rouge. And we're there for three months, and the town becomes something of our own, and everybody recognizes, oh, you're with the, you're with the picture. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're with the movie. Oh, good to, good to have you here. And that circus-like atmosphere governs the pace of the day, and it is exciting, but it's also incredibly challenging. There are times where everything works, and there are times where absolutely nothing works whatsoever. And you have... You have a 10-week, 12-week experience that is unlike any other, and then it's all over in the wink of an eye, and, and you're gone, and you can hardly remember the names of the people that you worked with. That, of course, is Tom Hanks. He's making a return visit to the show in which I ask him about a whole new side to his talent for storytelling. He's written a novel, and what a novel it is. It's a story that ranges over decades and tracks the emotional lives of a crowd of people who come together as near strangers to engage in the intimate experience of making a movie. Tom's book is called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece, which Tom describes as a primer on the long slog of bringing an idea from somebody's head to a theater near you. Tom has made more than 100 movies, so he sure knows the territory. I knew we were going to have a fun conversation. Tom, this is so great to be talking with you again. It's a pleasure, Alan. The way we won't cover the same ground is that you had not yet published your first novel. I'll tell you, I finished it days ago, and it still sticks with me. I still hear the people talking, and they look like real people to me. I see them in motion in the settings. Well, thank you. When you describe the characters, you put them in action with one another in a place. The details are very valuable to me. Not not the not the number of them, but the the particularity of them. I mean, you know, I don't know how you know all these details about everybody's life, like what a dishwasher needs to know to mm. do his job. Mm. How did you know that? Well, I did. I did wash dishes for a while uh, when I was in junior college. Um, uh, I had to pay some. I had to pay some rent, and yeah. I went back to. Uh, uh, I had family that had worked in a restaurant that happened to be a restaurant that my dad worked in when I was like seven years old. It was the really? cast, it was the Castaway Restaurant in Jack Lennon Square um, in Oakland, California. So I learned how to wash dishes, 
um, at the Castaway. And the job that you can pick up, drop off, take up anywhere. Chances are within a mile of where both you and I are, are sitting right now, a dishwasher is needed. And if you know the ins and outs of the Hobart professional dishwasher and um, how to uh, how to get the pots and how to get the pans and how to do all the cutlery and where to stack it all up, Leonard, you've got a trade that can take you uh, take you around the world. You can do that as a as a dishwasher, provided you are not trying to work your way up the food chain in the restaurant industry. I think the guy I replaced at the castaway was moving up to being the guy who was chopping all the vegetables for the salads and preparing the preparing the ingredients for the chefs. His ambition was to be a chef, I guess. That was his entry, entry level of restaurant business is one thing. And, and comparing that to entry level in show business, um, it's not uh, it's not all that different in that the uh, you know, I, I talked to many of folks whose job on a movie was to solve problems. And if you're going to rack the focus a little bit on that, that's exactly what a dishwasher does. <laughs> the dishwasher <laughs> solves the problem all day. <laughs> I had the impression that when you learned something about somebody's job, you made a note of it and had a notebook full of these details that are so convincing. Did you do that or is it all in your head? You couldn't have experienced everything all those people experienced, could you? No, but truly, I, I think I heard everything that is in the book from somebody. One of the characters in the book is really based on my longtime makeup man by the name of uh, Danny Strepek. He came to me on the last, literally the last day of shooting a movie called The Da Vinci Code. And he said, I want to tell you, kid, this is my last go round. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'll let you know in a little. He called me two weeks later. He said, I, it's, it's going to happen. I'm not, I'm not just done. I'm done, done. I said, Danny, you're retiring. Yeah, that's right. I decided to go out on the Da Vinci Code. So, so long, kid. It's been good work. And I ended up uh, doing a slight profile on him for the New York Times Style Magazine because over the years, he had told me countless little anecdotal stories about mm. how, where he was. He did Elvis Presley's makeup for five or six Elvis Presley movies. And he would talk, he would, he would talk about how Elvis was a, uh, was a great guy and he was surrounded by all these kooky friends and he was monstrously in love with um, Anne Margaret when they were making Viva Las Vegas. I said, I said, wait a minute, Danny, are you telling me that you did Viva Las Vegas? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. I did Harem Scarum. I, I did all those horrible uh, MGM movies. Said, and you did Elvis? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a, he, he was a good kid. He was a, he, was a, he was a nice man. So out of that comes moment after moment of uh, experience of, of these odd little kind of details that are magnified in their interest because they're about movies, movies that I saw. Danny Streepak figured out how to manufacture the uh, the makeups for the first Planet of the Apes. Uh, mm. Shared an Academy Award with it, I believe, with it. And not only that, he figured out how to manufacture, he's the man responsible for Lawrence Olivier's nose in Spartacus. <laughs> that along with the, the, the periphery of the rest of his life. His marriages, his, his, uh, he and I were about to start working on, uh, that thing you do, uh, when his wife was diagnosed with a, with a terminal illness. 
And he only worked on the picture for two days and then he went away and then he came back when it was all over and, and life was completely different for him. So you talk, to, you talk to folks just about how they did the job that you are now sharing with them. And it ends up being this, this uh, survey of the human condition of luck and moments of, uh, uh, moments of frustration and moments of uh, uh, the good happens right along uh, with the bad. I have made movies in which literally a crew, almost like the circus, you know, there's trucks and RVs and tents. We drop into a town. Sometimes the town is uh, Evansville, Indiana, or sometimes the town is Darmstadt, Germany, or sometimes the town is, is uh, Seattle or Baton Rouge or Albuquerque. And um, we're there for three months and the town becomes something of our own, and everybody recognizes. Oh, you're with the you're with the picture. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're with the movie. Oh, we're good to good to have you here. And that 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 circus like atmosphere governs the pace of the day, and it is exciting, but it's also incredibly challenging. There are times where everything works, and there are times where absolutely nothing works whatsoever. And you have. You have a 10-week, 12-week experience that is unlike any other, and then it's all over in the wink of an eye, and, and you're gone, and you can hardly remember the names of the people that you worked with. I made a movie about just that, as a matter of fact. The movie was about the movie company moving into the town, and when we moved into the town, we weren't welcomed by everybody because it was driving prices up in the restaurants, oh. and, it, and we were shooting a scene... Um, I was directing, and we, we, the actors were in the open convertible. And a woman came by on a bicycle and said, when you people leave town, I'm throwing a party. <sighs> that was Sweet Liberty, I'm guessing. I'm going to be yes, your IMDb that's right. Wow, right you, here. Yeah. You are, I, I'm going to I'm going to email you every time I want to remember the name of one of my movies. Uh, I that's paid great. to see it, right? Paid to see it, Alan. <laughs> paid to <laughs> see <laughs> you. You're, you're, you wrote it as well. I did, yeah. You know, the idea that the book is about making a movie is certainly what the book is about. But in the process of telling that story, you go so much deeper into an exploration of a number of things that I find really interesting. And at least this is what I saw. Maybe I saw something that you didn't intend. You must have been aware and carefully doing this idea of examining the way the culture reflects on itself in three different periods. But in the book... There are these wonderful sections of illustrations where you, where they're essentially comic books or graphic novels, sort of graphic yeah. graphic novels. Yeah, yeah. the The first one, the first comic book, is from 1947, and it plays in the in the in the in the role because uh, the uncle takes the little boy to the local newsstand drugstore fountain, and as he's sitting there uh, sipping on a on a coke, uh, his his uncle lets him buy all the comic books he wants to, and he buys some of the uh, that were out at the time. They, you know, it's called Heroes Under Fire, mm. uh, and it was the stories of World War II, uh, sort of like writ large. And it is the story of a flamethrower uh, that is, and for a five-year-old, six-year-old kid to look at this image, and and the uncle even says he points to the flamethrower in the comic book and says, "That's me," mm. meaning like that's that's the job I had in the war. And the little boy can't get that image of his uncle with this apparatus on his on his back. And later on, that same boy grows up to be a, an artist and he's working uh, at an underground comic company. And he ends up drawing this version 
of a godlike mythic flamethrower, but by way of the, the Vietnam War. Uh, right. Because it's written in 1971. And I read those comic books and I grew up around uh, the Bay Area. And so, and Vietnam was essentially, it tore us apart for the better part of uh, five or six years. And it turns into um, literally the his uncle with a, uh, a, 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 a ghost, huge ghost version of a mysterious flamethrower from from long ago and then the last the last comic book in it is the current version it's literally the graphic novel version of the movie they just made in which a superheroine and this uh ghostly uh flamethrower from the past uh, get together and and first they meet cute and then they do a lot of battle with each other i actually had to write the screenplay of the movie in order to uh, had to do that when- when did you do that? When did you write the screenplay? I wrote the screenplay when I began to write what is called The Shoot, which is, you know, the day day one of filming out of 55 days, day two of filming out of 55 days, day 14 of shooting out of 55 days. I realized I, I had to know exactly what I was shooting. I, I had to know what they were shooting. I had to have the story. So I had to pay, had to have a page count. You don't necessarily see that except in snippets, unless you can you can read it. It's on the. Well, I I think I got the pleasure of understanding what you were doing before I read the screenplay. Oh, I just noticed by accident at the back of the book that I could scan a QR code and read an entire screenplay that's only referenced a little bit in the book, and that's when I began to realize that I and I don't know if you meant this or not, but you're, I think you're exploring the different ways. We defined a hero over the decades in, in our culture. The first way was in 1947, where the fact of being a hero was based on your ability to kill the enemy. Then in the 70s, in the more underground, anti-patriotic point of view, that if you drop bombs on innocent civilians, it's not a good thing. And so finally, there's the superhero phase of entertainment. Mm. which is a whole other approach where people with huge powers can battle out these mythical questions. And I think this hero that seems to be a, a, a super villain needs the ministering or the combining with a superhero who has, partly because she's a woman, partly because of who she is in general, has empathy. And if you can combine his empathy, her empathy with his fierceness, and each one help the other, that maybe is a result to be longed for, for all of us. This goes into something that has driven me ever since I first became an actor, the, 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 great, uh, the great teacher that I had, a man by the name of Vincent Dowling, who ran the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival. Hmm. Uh, when I was at, this, this was literally my first job. Uh, and not just the first job, it was the, it was the moment where I leaned into and said, Oh, there is this track of life that I can take, which will be, uh, pursuing work as an actor. It's not just a job. It ends up being a, you know, like a lifestyle. And that opportunity, he said, um, we had, we were doing a slate of plays and, and he said something that just cocked me on the head, which was, all the great stories are about loneliness. All the great stories about uh, flawed people who are lacking a connection to others that makes life worth living. And he says, Hamlet is about loneliness. And so, oh, okay, well, then that case, so is Othello, so is our town, so, so, so is, uh, uh, so is uh, uh, 
uh, any current any current story that's that, that's even out today. This this brand of loneliness, and those two characters are so isolated in their in their uh, pain and sense of responsibility and dare I say it trauma um, and struggle. Uh, their own versions of some version of some kind of uh, PTSD that they can only be healed uh, with uh, with connection to another. So that's a big that's a big throw for any story. But as a backbone of the movie that they are making, it also, I think, speaks to an awful lot of the uh, the atmosphere of a making of a movie in which which is belonging to something bigger than yourself. One of the great joys of being in an ensemble cast or on a movie in which you work every day is you're with a ton of people that come to like each other, respect each other, have their fallouts, but you're all working towards a uh, a common purpose that is not like real life, that is that is uh, uh, segmented into this very, very specific portion. Look, one of the reasons we're all so nuts sometimes, Alan, is that, <laughs> is that we, we live these incredibly vibrant periods of weeks in which, man, it's just every day has a specific challenge and a purpose and a, and a hard work to it. And then it's over. You know, and yeah. then, it, then it's done. And the movie either works or it does not work. I'm, I wonder if you're like me, um, is that if I don't, I don't, I don't search out anything that I've, that I'm in sometimes, but it comes up on the grid on HBO or something like that. You catch a moment of it. And I don't remember what necessarily is going to happen in the movie, but I can tell you, oh, on that day, I had this problem. It was raining. You know, my kid had tonsillitis. It took, I can tell you all sorts of details that went into everything before the camera started rolling and the moments after. I could tell Me you what, too. We, I could tell you what we shot the day, you know, the, 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 oh, that was the second half of the day. In the early part of the day, we shot that. We went over under the tree and did all that kind of I, stuff. I look at, I, I've, I've seen that in, in the, under the same circumstances, just catching a minute of, of something as I'm turning the dial. And I see a shot and I say to Arlene, that on that day, that's a Friday we shot that. And I'm trying to get out to get to the airport to get home to see you. And I couldn't remember my lines shot after shot. And I'm going to miss the plane if I don't do better. I could show you. Say, yeah, OK, Steve Zahn had the horrible flu uh, in this scene. And, you know, he's going by. We can only do it <laughs> twice because the guy was passing out. And we were worried because they were driving the car, <laughs> driving the car themselves. Oh, there's just it, it goes along with it. And, and that, you know, that that is a detail that that goes along with being in a family. You know, a snapshot yeah. of a family. Oh, here's a vacation that we took to Yosemite in 1966. Now, do you, do you also do you also see a shot in the way it's framed? And instead of concentrating completely on that, you're thinking, who's off camera? Oh. What are they doing? How are they getting this shot? How are, is this a drone shot? Must be. Uh, every now and again, I will take a picture of what the actor sees. <laughs> you know, I'll just pull up my phone and I'll just pull it. <laughs> oh, that's it. great. And because here you here you are and you have, uh, uh, on in the way we did it, you would be looking out at probably as many as 15 people who are all looking at you. There's the focus puller. There's the camera operator. There's the loader. There's the boom operator. There's the script supervisor is, o is over right there. And then there's the rest of the crew and they're all there. And, uh, they're the, the only reason they're there is because you're there and you're, and you're shooting the scene. So yeah, I always think about, Oh my Lord, 
how'd they grab this shot? Not too, you know, not too long ago on HBO or Turner Classic Movies, I watched a couple of uh, minutes of Lawrence of Arabia, you know? And yeah. I'm watching Lawrence of Arabia, and I'm just thinking, can you, first of all, how'd they get, there, there are... There are probably 3,000 guys on horses and camels. And you know how long that shot took to set up? Do you know how long this dolly track must be? Do you realize how hot it must have been that day when all they're getting, all they're getting is a bunch of people riding on horses and camels from one side of the screen to the, to, to the other. You know, right. and all I can think about is the logistics on something like that. I do and, the same thing. And then you, when you, then you would also then focus on an incredible tight, tight moment of uh, incredible emotion like that. I am more of a fan of great film acting now, uh, certainly have, having made movies because I know that you, it is, it is, you have to be a, you have to have an awful lot of fidelity and ability inside yourself in order to sum up, sum up, summon up the moment that you have to go there, knowing that there is a camera on you and everybody's attention is on you and, so, and someone is examining everything. The other thing that gets me about it is similar to that, which is that because the camera's right in your face, spontaneity is of paramount importance. On the other hand, you might be shooting a scene that doesn't take place until three quarters of the way through the movie, and you've only so far shot stuff at the beginning of the movie, you have to know intellectually where you're going to be emotionally at that point when the movie is played in sequence. And yet, you, you, while you have to be intellectual about it, you also have to be totally spontaneous to the moment. I view it as being Joe DiMaggio in center field during the pitch. Where is the, is the batter going to swing? Where is the ball going to go? Should I be moving forward? Should I be leaving forward? Should I be leaning backward? Is this going to go from side to side? The word I think is, is I, the, the best I've heard to describe it is equipoise. You have to be in this, in this, in this perfect balance between relaxation and concentration. <laughs> Which is mm. contrary to the human condition outside of the only other time I think it exists is in the fight or flight reflexes of, of animals. Yes. You know, am I going to lean into and, a fight or I'm going to run away from this saber-toothed tiger? Which, which, one, there's, which a, one is, there's a third stance that takes over sometimes, which is just freezing in place like the deer in the headlights. I'm, how many times have you done that? I've, I'm, the, <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I'm the king of that sometimes. <laughs> When we come back from our break, Tom Hanks talks about the three things everyone needs if they're going to make it in the movies. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. 
P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Tom Hanks. I can see your hope to convey to people what it's like making a movie, because it is such a strange experience, and there's so many conflicting views of it that if you you walk on the set for the first time, you wonder. Everybody seems to be standing around, and only one person is doing something, but everybody else has to be ready to do their thing at the very moment that he's finished. You know, I've read on occasion, you know, the stories of the making of a movie and here's what went on. And that can that can be a describe of what happened <clears throat> in some of the soap opera, you know, melodrama that goes into it, the, the, both the good and the bad behavior of uh, the people on the set. Yeah. But in this, which, yeah, it's the first novel that I uh, uh, tried to do. And the adage of, you know, write what you know, you know, I know dishwashing and I know I know making <laughs> movies. So I, and I know, you know, I, I know what it's like to read comic books, but um, I. I wanted to, I, I would hope that anybody who invests in the, in, in making it to the end of the novel will come away with, with an understanding of, first of all, I think I could do that. But secondly, I would have to be really good at solving problems. And, you know, there, we, we say over and over again, you, you have to show up on time. You've got to know the text and you've got to have an idea. And most of the people on the planet Earth can do two of three of those things, right? I can show up on time and I can have an idea, but I'm no good at learning the text. Or I can learn the text and I can have an idea, but uh, don't ask me to be on time because, uh, you know. (laughs) But you have to do all three of those things every single moment of the of the uh, uh, of the production. Otherwise, it falls apart. There's also the other thing that some people add, which is don't bump into the furniture. Well, yeah, hit the marks, tell the truth, and don't bump into the furniture. That's uh, that's uh, that's good. Although, then sometimes. Sometimes you bump into the furniture and it works okay. And sometimes you, you don't tell it. the truth and uh, people buy it. On the stage, I had to play characters waking up on the couch the next morning in several plays. And But before I was 30, I had broken four or five toes on the couches in during the play. Oh, that's a that's a discussion in the in the hair and makeup trailer. By the way, for me, the hair and makeup trailer is Part solo preparation, part group therapy, uh, <laughs> yeah. part bitch session, you know, and also a report on, hey, what did you do last night? Well, we had a great karaoke contest in the hotel, you know, stuff like that. But the, the, when you start saying, telling stories of the injuries that, that you yourself have occurred or that you've seen happen, you know, a bumped head, something fell, fall, fell down, it rained too much and, and, and you, and you, 
And uh, I, we were once, uh, we were making a movie, believe it or not, this was on a movie called Charlie Wilson's War with uh, uh, the great Phil Seymour Hoffman and uh, Julia Roberts. And Mike Nichols directed. And we were... We were rained out on a set in the Atlas Mountains of uh, of Morocco, uh, high above uh, Marrakesh, and suddenly an entire movie company was left adrift for thirty six hours, and all we could all they could do was sit around in the, in a hotel and and tell stories about you know mm-hmm. what happened on various other jobs and oh even if you just have that story. Uh, hey, yeah. what was the longest you've been rained out on a low? Oh my God, the longest we've been rained out. <laughs> haven't haven't been able to work because of something. And it was so funny because when it's raining cats and dogs, there's still somebody's job is out there to try to get something in the can. They will try. No, no, no we can shoot. We can shoot. We're going to build a tent and we're going to come by the thing and we'll come by and get you later on. And he says, okay, all right. I'm, I'm in, I'm in equipoise. I'm in the place of a relaxation and concentration. So let me know what you need from me and I'll try to make it happen. You're calling up right now so many stories in my own head about the same kinds of things. We're nearly coming to the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you something that has been in my mind for a while. One of the characters talks in the book about conversations he's having with the director of the movie within the the book. And he says, we talked in our conversations about the inevitability of war. And it made me wonder, because you've been in so many films and produced so many that have to do with war. Has your, has your, take on war changed any over time? Has it deepened? Is it inevitable? What, what do you think? Uh, <clears throat> alas, uh, as, a, as a student of human nature um, and history, going back, <laughs> going back to when uh, there was a watering hole and two different groups of apes, <laughs> you know, you could go back all the way back to the dawn of man. Um, there is always going to be somebody who is trying to be king of all they survey. Um, and it doesn't mean they're smart. There is always going to be a type of um, conflict. And it has, it has shifted over time. Um, uh, there is always going to be a, a theological differences. Um, there are always going to be geographical differences. There's always going to be uh, cultural and uh, differences in, by way of heritage. And I, whereas I think um, I'd like to like to think that war is not inevitable, but I'll ask you, Alan. In the in my lifetime, I'm 67 years old. When has there not been an armed conflict going on somewhere on the planet Earth? It's I know, you know I've been around now. In a couple couple of days, I'll be 88, and I have the same experience that you do of looking at the present and the past at any at any time. And it does seem inevitable. On the other hand, it might not be evolutionarily impossible to overcome our own aspects of our own nature, which may lead to our destruction if they get out of hand. We've got the tools to kill ourselves if we don't uh, shape up a little bit. I remember being a kid in, in uh, like 66 or whatever, SMMA in the 70s, and realizing that America was now selling all sorts of grain to the then Soviet Union mm-hmm. because the Soviet Union was needed food. And I remember thinking, hey, 
With if that's the case, there's never going to be a war between us and the Soviet Union because <laughs> yeah, they, right. literally they 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 need our wheat and our, they need our corn. That made me feel good, and now here we are, and there's you know there's a war in what used to be the the Soviet Union, and there's any number of armed conflicts. When before he passed away, Stephen Ambrose, who wrote Band of Brothers and wrote Citizen Soldiers, he he wrote the uh, wrote D Day. He was a great historian. I heard him speak, and he said, uh, "I believe in the next twenty years, the world is going to embrace democracy in a way that it uh, that's going to alter the, the the history of the world." And I thought that is great. I hope I hope that happens. And you can look at the the paradox that goes on historically that there is a huge amount of the world that gets along just fine. Probably more of the world gets along just fine now than in the history of uh, of humankind. We're, we're bound by trade we're bound by the same common desires um uh we're, we're we're bound by you know our cultures are you know we're we're very we're very uh used to uh uh influences from uh from from other cultures both you know in film story food fashion all this you could look at us and think we're we're much more connected than we've ever been and yet we still have some very very primal uh differences that come out in, on a battlefield uh, and alas, I think you come down the great paradox that um, of the human condition that everybody would like to get along until they can't, <laughs> or, or until they until they choose not to get along. Yeah. So, my, in answer to your question, to me, I, I share your dismal view that so, the way it looks now, it's not. It's going to be inevitable. On the other hand, in our spare time, we can work on making it. Avoidable, and I think we do. I think many, many, the vast majority of people do. They, they, they work on getting along. Well, I wish we could talk more, but our time is running out. And we, I, I, last time we talked, I asked you seven quick questions. I'm going to ask you the same seven quick questions again. Okay, bring them on. What do you wish you really understood? Uh, economics. That's the same thing you said last time. No, I don't. The number, numbers and money makes no, 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 no sense to me. I think, I think that's the same thing. Okay. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, that may be true. Oh. oh. <laughs> what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, what's, it, what's it like? Dot, dot, dot. What's it like? And I always answer, it's like being a dog stuck up in a tree on Thursday. I, that's because the best I can describe come up. What, any, what anything is like. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, hey, you know what? I got to, I talked to, I got, excuse me, I have to talk to Barbara. <laughs> there is <laughs> no Barbara. There is no Barbara. Oh, you know, excuse, can you hold that thought? I have to go talk to Barbara for just one second. Let's say you're at a dinner table with, next to someone you don't know. Mm -hmm. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Mm. I say this. I believe I have won the lottery. I am sitting next <laughs> to you, and I get to find out what makes you tick. Out with it. That's what I say. <laughs> Pretty good. What gives you confidence? N uh, I I, the, 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 the slow um, acquisition of... Uh, wisdom 
And I don't, I don't, I'm, and I mean that when I'm, when I read or see or am exposed to something and it expands my, my understanding of my, my own shortcomings. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, <clears throat> I am going to say, uh, my name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potok, if I can, if I have that, uh, correct, um, it was a, a gift for Asher Lev. I, it was the first of the all of the Chaim Potok's books that that I read, and what it, it's about an Orthodox uh, uh, Jewish family, Orthodox Jewish boy, growing up in New York, uh, I think in the nineteen fifties. And I I thought I had nothing in common with any of these people, and yet when I read it, I said, "This is my family, and this is me, and this is the same exact." Um, aspect of mystery of living that uh, that I'm constantly trying to solve on my own. That kind of intergroup understanding, empathy, may be the kind of thing that'll save us all. Let's let's lean into it. You know, they say that one of the ways that you can get better empathy, that you can exercise better empathy, is to read novels, and that's now the business you're in. And I think that you're on the right track to do that very thing. Oh, well, I, I, the, the, the only time I go to bed and curse my day is when I have had not had time to read for the sheer pleasure mm. of reading. That's, that's the difference between a good day and a bad day. Tom, thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed talking with you again. Ah, well, well, next time it'll be just over a cup of coffee and we'll have none of these people with us or these microphones in front of us. And we can really talk. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it, Alan. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Bye-bye. Yeah, take care. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Tom Hanks is, well, Tom Hanks. What more is there to say? Except a reminder that his new and first novel is the making of another major motion picture masterpiece. And that along with Steven Spielberg, he executive produced the World War II drama Masters of the Air. It's now streaming on Prime Video. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, Next in our series of conversations, I talk with another returning guest who has also written a new book since the last time we chatted. It's Robert Sapolsky. The book is called Determined, and in it, Robert sets out to convince you, and in our conversation, convince me, that free will is an illusion. I recognize I'm kind of out on the lunatic fringe in believing that there's no free will at all. Um, so as long as I convince people there's less of it, I'm good, especially less of it 
when they're thinking about sort of every major important <laughs> moment in their lives and how they judge people. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll settle for getting people halfway there. Find out if I am halfway there and wondering how free my will is when I talk with Robert Sapolsky next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.